I thought I would share some personal stories of being an Air Force chaplain. I was an Air Force chaplain, and I love the Air Force. There's nothing um, better than the Air Force, right, Jose? You would agree that. There's some Army guys in here probably, some Marines. They might not like that, but when you rule the skies, you rule the world. That's what we were taught. So I could, I could share stories of being a chaplain, an Air Force chaplain, or stories of my experience here as a hospital chaplain. I have many stories, many stories, where God has led my life, where he has rescued me, where he has forgiven me, where he has saved me when I did nothing like the songs that were sung this morning to deserve it. I can tell you wholeheartedly that I am grateful and thankful for all his many blessings. Are you thankful and grateful for God's blessings this morning? Yeah, that's where to be. But today, instead of telling my story, I would rather show a story in the Bible because here's where we find stories that only not only match our story, but tell a greater story. Yeah, I have stories that I could tell you, but there are no greater stories than the ones in here, okay? The greatest story ever told is the story of God's love. The greatest story that has ever been told is the story of God's love for you and for me, okay? It's not just God's love, but it's that story for you and for me. God's love for you and for me. That's the greatest story ever told. God's love was why Jesus came to this earth. Did you know that? God's love is why Jesus came to this earth. What was Jesus' whole purpose? Come on, talk to me, church, because I need you to participate. What was Jesus' whole purpose for being here on this earth? Reconcile. Ooh, I like, ooh that's, that's, that's a theologian. Okay. Yes. The goodness of God. I like that. Anybody else want to share why Jesus came to this earth? First and foremost, he came to show who his father was. That's what he came for, to show who his father was. Because in that time, and even in our time, and throughout all history, people have the wrong perception and idea of God. You can study all kinds of religious religions, and you will see a, a, a wrong perception and knowledge of who God is. That's why we like the tables of truth or the table of truth. And David Asher talks about that, that acts to be on the table of love. That's why even, you know, our state of the dead is about love because God is not someone who burns people forever and ever and ever. He's not like that. God is love. God is love. So his whole purpose, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen, you've seen the Father. I believe a Seventh-day Adventist, watch this, don't get mad at me, here we go, and I'm going to rub some people the wrong way this morning, I'm just going to tell that right out, that's my disclaimer right now. I'm no longer pastor for the conference, so they can't do anything to me, so I say whatever I want. I'm endorsed by the church, but still, I'm not endorsed by the conference. That's not a bad thing, nor a good thing, I'm not saying anything like that. But I can share something, that as Seventh-day Adventists, we have not fulfilled that message of God's love. Okay? We've done a really good job with our doctrines. We've done a good job with our hospitals. We've done a good job with our schools. Sometimes we don't do a good job. 
I'm going to be honest, because we're not perfect. We're people, and we make mistakes. And there is a new generation theology, and this might touch somebody the wrong way, that believes that God is waiting for a perfect church. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And I'll tell you why. Because God didn't save them when they were perfect in Israel. He saved them where they were. Okay? So I don't believe that God has to wait for us for anything. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He's much bigger than that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. Who's the preacher here today, buddy? I'm just kidding. No, I like that because you're participating. I want that. And we can talk afterwards, too, but that's a very good point. But don't get me distracted now, all right? But here's the point. God is big. God is big. Who? So just think about that for a second. Put that in your brain. And now I want you to ask you, who are your favorite characters in the Bible? Because we're going to study one. Remember I told you we're going to study a story. Who are your favorite characters in the Bible? Come on. You guys are half asleep. Noah. Noah. I heard Noah over here. Very cool. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. He got drunk right after the flood. Okay. Who? <laughs> Esther. Esther. Ooh, I can't say many things wrong with Esther. Okay. That's a hard one. She was a good gal. Okay. I like that story, too. She taught us to pray. Esther teaches us to pray and to pray faithfully. Moses. 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 Moses is a great character in the Bible. In fact, David Asterisk always says this. There are three great characters of the Old Testament. You know who they are? David. Moses and Abraham. Those are the three main characters of the Old Testament. Right. So we see that he wasn't perfect, right? We know that he hit the rock. Okay. Who else do you love? Huh? Daniel. Daniel. Daniel, Daniel just, ooh, he's, he's such a perfect uh, representation of what we should be as Christians. I'm going to tell you why. Because his moral compass was amazing. He was so good. Yet, when he prays in Daniel 9, oh my goodness, his prayer is so beautiful and that he realizes and he prays not only for himself but his people saying that they are not worthy. They are not good. How does Daniel do that when everything in his life was good? Because he knew his heart. He knew his heart. That's where some of us can get stuck. And that's why we always need Jesus, because of our heart. Okay? Anyone else? And then we'll go to Joseph. That's another one I love. Joseph is a type of Jesus. No question, Joseph is a type of Jesus. His whole, that whole story. If you read that story, you will find it that even Judah, when Judah was the one that said, I'll go and I'll give him my life, is why Jesus comes from the line, tribe of Judah. It's, it's just a really powerful story. And yeah, that, that is a really good one. But today, I want to share one of my favorite heroes in the Bible, and that is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. You see, he was perhaps my dad's favorite. My dad was so moved by Paul that when, he, uh, when my mother had Paul in his womb, my brother, and you played with him. Let's just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> Now I'm thinking about my brother. Um, he named him Paul because he was so moved by the story of the Apostle Paul. 
He was studying that story when my brother was born. Who was Paul? Who was Paul? He was a strong man. Oh my goodness, have you read how many times he was beaten? He was a strong man. He was filled with grit and determination. Anyone that was exploring the earth at that time, like Lewis and Clark, had to be super strong, having to do with the elements. He was like a Marine. There was a willpower that he had that was incredible. He had determination. He was successful, and he was powerful. He was successful, and he was powerful. Two attributes we admire in men, powerful and successful. He says of himself that he came from the tribe of Benjamin, from Saul's line. Why would he say that? Why was he proud of that? Come on. Why was he proud that he came from Benjamin's tribe, Saul's line? He was named after Saul. Why? Because Saul was the first king of Israel. He was a royal line. He was a royal line. That's the way Paul looked at himself, as a royal line. His name was Saul after Saul, the first king of Israel. What was Saul's characteristics? Do you remember? He was different than David. What was different about him? He was tall. He was handsome. He was strong. And so the apostle Paul was really proud of the fact that he came from a royal line. Don't forget that in this sermon. However, Paul was not only powerful, he was extremely bright. You might say he was equal to a Harvard scholar or maybe an Air Force fighter pilot. You know that the fighter pilots, out of 30 people that are in a class of pilots, only two, maybe one, become fighter pilots. They're so successful. Or maybe a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. This is the kind of power, admiration, esteem that people looked at Paul. However, Paul was not complete, and we know that. Paul had checked all his boxes, and he was proud for it. But despite his most offensive sin, what is God's most offensive sin? What does God say is the most offensive sin? Pride, pride. But despite his most offensive sin, God was still chasing him, as Russ was talking about in the song, right? God was still chasing him. God knew his heart. Paul had an incredible conversion story found in Acts chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 9. If you have your phone, open it to Acts chapter 9. You know this story. Most Christians know this story. He was on his way to Damascus. Remember this story. He was on his way to Damascus, a city which had probably 30 to 40 synagogues. His commission was to kill every Christian, everyone from the way he was going to kill. That was his commission. That was his power. That was his strength. He had command, what we call in the military, command authority. And he was going to these synagogues in Damascus to kill Christians. That was his purpose. Remember, God's purpose is to love you. Paul's purpose, Saul's purpose at this moment was to kill you. Okay? So let's go to Acts chapter 9. Let's read the story together. Tell me when you have it say amen. Okay. Acts chapter 9. Okay, you guys ready? Then Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, who were the way? People that followed Christ, right? Of the way, whether men or women, he would, might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. You all know this story. A light came shining down on Saul. Then he fell to the ground. So that light had to be what? Pretty powerful for you to fall to the ground because of light. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Think about that just for a second, because remember, the reason why Paul was going to Damascus was to kill Christians because of this guy named Jesus that they all believed had been risen from the dead. Do you understand my point? Now, all of a sudden, he's hearing a voice, and it's saying, I am who? I am that person. I am Jesus. Think about what's going out through his brain. Everything now is just, wow. Like he is just beside himself. What is he thinking? What is he doing? I don't know. I wasn't Saul. I wasn't there at that moment. I don't, I don't know. I'm not in his, I wasn't in his moccasins. But I know one thing. He had to be afraid. He had to be afraid. You are persecuting. It's hard. And then it says, whom you are persecuting, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you know what a goad is? Anyone know what a goad is? It's a stick. That's right. We got some theologians over here. It's a stick. And so what the, the people did, farmers especially, ranchers, they would take these big sticks and they would point, get them to the place where they would have a point, right? So what you would do with the goad is poke the animal so you could get them to move, just like a donkey or a cow or whatever that animal was, you'd get them to move. Also, you could build a fence where if they would go up against the goad, what would happen? They would feel that pain and they would get back to where they needed to be. And so what Paul is saying is, don't you know that you're kicking the goads? And when we are in sin, we are kicking and hurting ourselves. Does that make sense? When we have addictions, we are hurting ourselves. When we are being not kind to others, we are hurting ourselves. When we are persecuting someone, we are hurting ourselves. When we are judging others, we are hurting ourselves. Does that make sense? So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city that you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there for how many days? Oh, that's significant too, right? We know the stories with three days and, and, and without food, without side, or without water. So I, I want you to imagine Saul now in the situation that he's in. First of all, his world has come tumbling, tumbling down because Saul really believed what he was doing was right. Do you understand what I'm saying? He believed with all his heart he was doing the right thing. Okay. Now his 
world is crashing down on him. And not only that, he has lost his sight. How many of you have ever worked at summer camp? Have you? Did you do blind camp? Do you remember that? We used to do blind camp. And for half the day, we would be the one that would lead the blind person. So we'd put something on, on our uh, partner's eyes, and then we'd lead that blind person, which you know, uh, was another ca uh, counselor. And half the day, we would do that. And then the second half of the day, then it was your turn. Did you get, does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Okay, so you know, at first it was really funny. You know, I remember be, me being the first one that was leading. You know, I led the guy into things, and I wanted to lead him into the water, and you know, I just wanted to be just be funny, and and, and make him fall, and all these kind of things. And then I realized, wait a minute, he's going to do the same thing to me. But it didn't take very long to realize how helpless you are without sight. Okay. Didn't take very long. And that was the whole point of us getting the blindfolds so that we would understand the blind campers when they came to have camp. To understand what they were going through. To understand a little bit about them. That was very eye-opening to have your eyes closed. Right? It wasn't fun. It was helpless. And so here's Paul. Here's Paul, a person with great strength, great determination, great will, great intellectual power. Now he is helpless. Guess who also was, were helpless? Those Christians that he was killing. So he was helpless. And so here's the point in this story. Sometimes, and I, oh, I'm already at 12.05. What time do you guys quit? No, maybe it's like my uncle. Well, you know, he said, when do, when do you, how long should I preach? They said, well, you preach all you want, but at 12, we're gone. So I don't know what to do here. I, I mean, I'm like half of my sermon. Okay. How much? Okay, I'll hurry. I'll hurry. I'll be done by 12.30, no problem. Okay, so... Here's, here's a lesson in this story, and it's a critical lesson. And I see this in the hospital every day. Sometimes it takes the crises in our lives to bring a strong person to the end of their own resources. You've been with them, Ed. Sometimes it takes a crisis in our lives to bring us to the end of our own resources. All of a sudden, Paul, who thought he was so strong, so intellectually superior, knows there's someone above that can put him in his place anytime, anywhere. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's never felt like that before. He's always been number one. And all of a sudden, he knows that the one that blinded him, the one that put him in that situation, has all the power over him. And he's in a really critical place in his life. Paul had that experience in his own eyes. And in his own eyes, in the eyes of everyone in his circle, Paul was a good person. In his circle, people admired Paul. Oh, there goes Paul. Look at that Pharisee. I mean, he went to the right schools. He's so cool with those robes. I don't know what he wore, but it must have been Armani. Uh, whatever it was, he was so cool. 
a perfect person. But after his conversion, he shifts from a blameless Pharisee picture to the real question of the gospel. Do you know Jesus? He comes to the real question of the gospel. Do you know Jesus? May I remind you this Sabbath, the only way you have righteousness, the only way you are good is because of Jesus. I'm going to say it again. The only way you have righteousness, the only way you are good is because of Jesus. That's it. Going to church on this Sabbath is not good enough. Ouch. Knowing Jesus and his love is the most important truth we have. That's the most important truth we have. Knowing Jesus and his love. It makes no difference if you're beautiful or ugly, black or white, rich or poor, fat or thin, gay or trans, Baptist or Adventist, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. As Adventists, we sometimes have problems with justification by faith, salvation through grace. We want to make sure everyone understands sanctification. Why is that? Why is it that we are so hung up in sanctification? Because we find it more appealing to do it ourselves. We want to climb the religious ladder equal, climbing, equal to climbing a social ladder. Let me explain. This is where I might just get five minutes afterwards. Let me explain. In a social ladder, we live it every day. It's called the American dream. We want more money. There's not a person in there, I think, that doesn't want more money. If you don't, I think you're probably lying. Okay? We want a bigger house. Right? We want a better house. We want a faster car. Boy, do I wish I had a Tesla. I want a Tesla so bad, I want to stop paying for my boy's stuff so that I can have a Tesla. They're a lot of money, but I want one. I want a Tesla. I don't know. The boys, yeah, you'll, okay, stop that, Adric. I want a Tesla. I go to the mall and I go look at them. I go and sit in them. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to drive one because then I know that I might do something that I'll regret. But I've been in them. They're so quiet and they are so fast. And then I battle, well, do I really want the Tesla or would I look a lot better in a new Corvette? Because that would really be cool. My midlife crisis to have a Corvette and they look like Lamborghinis now. They are beautiful, right? So we climb that social ladder. In fact, people climb it at work. They want to get to the next position. They want to become the CEO. We see that in the hospital world. We see it in the corporate world. We climb that ladder. Why? Because when we climb that ladder, we have more toys. We might have a boat. We might have better trips. We might be going to Greece instead of Mexico. Do you understand what I'm saying? We climb that ladder and we want the very best. In fact, some people climb the ladder where they belong to country clubs. Because I'm a municipal golfer. I would love to be a country club golfer. Why? Because there's less people on the course and because I've arrived. I'm the country club cholo. I would love that. Okay? I would love that. And that's climbing the ladder. And guess what? When you get to the very top of that ladder, when you're a country club kind of person, you only want to hang out with country club folks. 
Because you look at everyone else and you go, you know what? They don't drive what I drive. They don't have a car where I live. They don't look like I do. They don't have that, you know, fine body that I go get in training every day with my personal trainer. Do you understand my point? And it's real easy to get to the very top and look down at the people below you. Real easy to do, people. Real easy. We do it all the time. Whether you go in the middle of that ladder or to the very top of the ladder, it's really easy to look down at the bottom of the ladder. Okay, now this is where oof, I'm going to be in trouble. We can do that with a religious ladder. As Adventists, we have a religious ladder. We get baptized. We stop smoking and drinking, which is a good thing. All these things are good, just like even getting to the place where you can have money. There's nothing wrong with it. It's what you do with that money. There's nothing wrong with it. Job had money. You can't say that money is, says it's the root of all evil, but Sister White says you could have money. Just use that money to help others, right? We stop smoking and we drink. We stop drinking. We climb a little higher if we get to Sabbath school on time. I'm a pastor's kid. My dad used to talk about the people that didn't get to Sabbath school on time. Ouch. We got them a little a lot higher when we study the Sabbath school lesson because we want to get those stars. And we want to be able to participate. And we want to know. Nothing wrong with this, people. Nothing wrong with this. Okay, we climb a little higher if we go to prayer meeting. Oh, prayer meeting is the ones that my dad really believed. Those were the true believers. They were the prayer meeting folks. They really loved church. They are the leaders of the church. We don't drink coffee and we go a little higher. We don't go out to eat on Sabbath and we go out a little higher. We, we become vegetarians and we get a little higher. We become vegans, baby. We've arrived. And I've be, been a vegan. I've been a vegan. And let me tell you something. I was angry all the time because I wasn't eating what I wanted to. At the same time, and this is where I'm going with this, it was the best diet I've ever had in my life. Okay? Best diet. We reach the top, and we can get to the top, and we can look down at those who aren't climbing the ladder. That's my point. Are, is this resonating? Is this making sense? We can look down and we can go, wow, I've arrived. I'm a vegan. But look at those that don't come to Sabbath school. Look at those that are drinking coffee. And then we do something that I think is so bad. And some Adamists do it. My mother did it. My mother was the most wonderful Adamist on the planet. We would get to the top and we think everyone is lost. We think everyone is lost. Please hear this loud and clear. There is nothing wrong in climbing the social ladder. There's nothing wrong in climbing the religious ladder. But when you get to the top, what is your attitude? What is your attitude? How do you look on those who haven't climbed the ladder? My beautiful wife has a patient who told her the other day, all gay people are going straight to hell. Do you know what her response was? I'm so glad I don't make that decision. I'm so glad I don't make the decision of who makes it 
and who doesn't. Only, you know what she told him? Only Jesus does. As Adventists, we can't say who makes it or who doesn't. Jesus is the only one that can. He has that royal right. He can say a, Jew, a, a Jewish person is going to be there, a Hindu person is going to be there. He can say that an atheist is going to be there. I can't. I don't have that right, but Jesus does. Jesus has that right. He has that royal right. Did you know grace can be hard truth for Admas? You know, when I tell my Admas brothers and sisters, yes, I believe we're going to be there, but heaven's not about Adventism. It's about Jesus. The Bible is full of stories how grace can upset good people, like Seventh-day Adventists, if we're not careful. The story of the prodigal son. That shows the two sons. Some Adventists are like the elder son. And guess what? God loves them just as much as he loves the one is that's the partier, the wild one, the one that was even with prostitutes, that blew all that money. Talk about a story of God's love. Why? Because whether you're Hindu, whether you're Christian, whether you're Muslim, you are a child of God. The story of the generous landowner. Have you read that recently? Oh, my goodness, that really makes me upset. You know, I've been the Adventist kid all my life. You mean the one that just gives their life to Jesus that very moment, like the thief on the cross, gets everything that I was working for as a vegan? Wow. The parable of the 99 sheep that you sung today. Wow. The trouble with grace, it doesn't allow people to get arrogant about who they are and what they've done. Most of us Christians are disciples of pull our own weight. We are capable, self-reliant, high-achieving. We don't deserve something we don't work for. After, after all, God helps those who help themselves. Right or wrong? Don't answer that question. Because you know what's in the Bible? That was written by Benjamin Franklin, by the way, in his almanac. You know what's in the Bible? God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. Those are the ones that God helps. The woman at the well, five husbands. Mary Magdalene. Zacchaeus. Listen to what Sister White says. This is awesome. This is in Steps to Christ. Watch this. I have to read this over and over to get it into my thick head. Watch this. Christ can do nothing towards our recovery from sin, even though he justifies us when we come to him. When we come to him, 1 John 1, 9, he cleanses us. We're justified until we are convinced of our own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, we yield ourselves to his control. That's powerful. You know what that's saying? Finally, the addict has to come to that place. You work in step seven. They got to come to that place. We have to come to that place where we let him have control. And that's hard. Why? Because I have a good chappy and a bad chappy. That's what they call me in the hospital, chappy. A good and a bad. And I'm always hanging on to that bad because I want my control. I want what I want. I want my sin. I want that. But I have to yield 
to his control. Right, baby? I'm looking at you, baby. Not that baby, you, baby. Right? To yield to his control, and that could take a lifetime. That could take a lifetime. People, it all boils down to one thing. Do you know Jesus? Do you know about his wonderful love and his wonderful grace? And I got 10 more minutes. I'm going to finish this up even though I could go longer, and I'm not. When I was in Academy at Sandy View a thousand years ago, I learned all the rules of being a good Adventist. I was not to drink. I wasn't to dance. I wasn't to go to movies. I wasn't to drink caffeine. I wasn't to play sports on Sabbath. I wasn't not to watch television on Sabbath. I was definitely not to, supposed to be kissing. I was not to be holding hands. I was not to listen to rock and roll. And sometimes I wondered if there were Admas that thought having fun was wrong. I've decided I'm going to live on the other side of them in the New Jerusalem. <laughs> what I didn't learn, what I didn't learn in Academy, is how crazy God was about me. How much he loved me. See, I love my boys. I have a Matthew and Mark, and I love them. And one of them is harder than the other one. And his mother loves them the most. Well, favors. Good thing they're not here. Hopefully they're not online. Okay. <laughs> she loves them both. There's no question about that. Because only a mother can love the way a mother loves. That's why the Bible talks in Isaiah about a mother's love. Because we men, we don't even get it. I love my boys. One has earrings. Can't stand them. Can't stand them. I want to go grab them by the ears and yank them off. My brother Ed, the beautiful person that he is, he told my son, those are really beautiful. Those are nice. My son will not leave church because of Ed. If Ed would have told him, you kid, you dumb kid, why do you have those on? Don't you know that Jesus doesn't like those? My son wouldn't go to church, but he still loves church. That's important. I love my boys. In fact, Russell over there was a great teacher. I'm going to pick on you, Russell. I'm going to get closer so you, do, you know, in case you want to hit me, you can. Russell was his teacher. And Mark's a punk, but I chose Mark because he's my son. And I said some things to you I wish I had never said to you because of my son, but I want you to know he's everything to me. And he's my, I'll protect him always and do stupid things because of him. It wasn't you, my brother. I'm looking at you going, I'm sorry, bud. I'm sorry. But that's my boy, and I love him with his faults. You knew his faults, I knew his faults, but I still chose you, him over you because he's my boy. I didn't want to listen to Russell because he's my boy. Do you understand what I'm saying? Russell had all the right in the world to be mad at Mark, but he's my boy. You know what God says in Isaiah? You contend with my children and I will contend with you. 
Paul was passionate on this point. Our good deeds and our obedience have nothing to do with causing us to be saved. Paul considered his mission to the religious climbers. There's only one reason anyone is saved or lost, and it's because of that cross. That's it. Jesus has the royal right, and here's where I'll finish. Jesus has the royal right to tell Satan when he's accusing me, because Satan loves to accuse David Martinez. You see, I'm on the golf course. I might say a word that no chaplain should say. And I might have thoughts and actions that no chaplain should have. We're all sinners. There's not one of us. Stand up here if anyone's perfect. I want to see who you are. Right? And Satan says to, to, to God, see, David? He's not yours. He's mine. You know what God says to, to, to Satan? Number one, I created him. You didn't. I created him. I created David. He's my son. I saved him. He's my son. You see, my boys never doubt that I'm their dad. Why? Because they look like me. They talk like me. They eat like me. They know that their dad is David Martinez. That's it. And the most significant part of our relationship or part of our relationship is they know that I love them. And so what God is saying to Satan, you know what? He's mine. He's mine. And I have that royal right. I have that royal right. And guess what? He is my son. He is my daughter. That's called assurance of salvation. That's the beauty of God's love. And I missed a bunch that I wanted to share with you because of time. But I want you to know that the most important thing we can leave our kids when this time of mental anguish this time of anxiety. Jose, you know. Bernice, you know. You guys are teachers. The kids are full of anxiety. They are full of fears. They have full of anguish. They're stressed out. As teachers, as whatever you are, whatever you are, nurses, retired, show God's show God's love. That is our purpose. That's why we're here. Amen.